modern-day Turkey. And in this letter, we're invited into freedom. We started it by looking at how Paul uh, greets the early church folks, whether it was the Galatians or Ephesians, Philippians, those at uh, the, the Colossians or those in Thessalonica or Timothy or Titus or Philemon. Like he is writing to them and so often, time after time, he says what? We're here last week. He says grace and peace. Okay, a spattering of response. I was hoping for more. That hurts the self-image, but I'll move on. Paul says grace and peace, grace and peace. And our small group talked Wednesday night as we discussed the sermon together the, in the sermon series that we were presented, many of us, with opportunities to express grace or ungrace, to uh, give peace or enter into conflict. And that's the life that we lead. I love that about the word. It's living and active. It does that. It, it, it challenges and inspires. It comforts and corrects us and gives us a lot of opportunities to demonstrate faith in God and in his goodness. And so here we are in Galatians, a life of freedom. And we sort of have a tagline for this whole sermon series. We're saying that a life turned inward is a life held back. There's a life forward. Jesus moves people forward, and he moves people forward uh, into freedom. So what I want us to do today, this will be a little different. Uh, I'm going to read Galatians chapter 2, and it's, this is what's different. It's not going to be on the screen. So you're not going to know how to act, are you? So turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, so you'll know I'm reading the word, or just listen to my voice. It's not Morgan Freeman. It's not John Maxwell. Uh, we have a local um, reporter, broadcaster, local celebrity here. Y'all don't look at him, but he's over this way. And he's got a great voice. And even Scott, a face for TV as well, I want to tell you. But uh, we got some good voices. You'll have to put up with mine. But listen to me now or look on and listen to me as we read Galatians 2. It's quite a stretch, but stay with me. And we're going to draw some good stuff out of this. Galatians chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery... To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Though I say who seemed influential, they added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to be to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the, the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. Verse 11, we're rolling through it. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not live like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? 
We are, ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I've torn down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And here's the verse we're pointing to today, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here, Paul is writing and he's fired up. Now, he does grace and peace, grace and peace. That's his salutation. He meant it. We looked last week that grace is charis. It's this, it has multiple meanings, but it's sort of it's, it's, it's joy and it's pleasure and favor, acceptance, forgiveness, and love to those who don't merit, earn it, or deserve it. That's grace. Grace to you. But he's fired up. Why is he fired up? He's fired up because there's a couple of paths that these early believers have taken. They have veered off. Trouble has come in. Notice sort of the military language. There are spies in their midst, and they want to remove them from freedom back into slavery. I think I've asked some of you this before, but have you been to the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum yet? Have you been? Go. Listen, go. It's great. And it is, it's, it, it's something that will make you proud. It's something that will disturb you. It's something that will uh, make you think. And how sad is it when you get to that section, when you realize what had changed in America and what should have changed in Mississippi, but we were stuck. And there were people that had been declared free, but they just couldn't walk in freedom. And this is what Paul is saying to the church. There is freedom. There's love and forgiveness and acceptance to everybody, okay? God shows no partiality. This is a gospel message to everybody. We get really confused about this in the church today. So did they. And that's why Paul is writing pretty heavy here. Now, Paul is putting his hands on the steering wheel and teaching us that we make a mistake when it comes to the steering wheel of life. I got a call from a friend this week. He's a Mississippi boy, born and bred. He's only lived in Mississippi. He's smart and educated, well-traveled. But this is his first time to move out of state. And guess where he moved to? New Jersey. Now, we've had quite a winter by our standards, hadn't we? But to move to New Jersey this winter, I mean, so we're talking. He's like, man, Robert, boom, boom, boom. He's telling me all about the winter wonderland that didn't seem so wonderful at this point in his life. And he said it's true. When you're driving on those icy roads over a bridge and you lose control of the car, you're defenseless and helpless. And what you want to do in that moment, you ever experienced this? What you want to do in that moment is turn the wheel, right? In the, the op, you're going this way. You want to turn it this way. And that's dangerous when you're driving, and it's dangerous when you're living. We do that in life. We veer off. We don't like the direction that we're going. We panic. We grab the steering wheel as tight as we can. And what do we do? We turn it in the opposite direction. We do that with diet. For some of you, maybe this is your story. You've had a steady diet of high fructose corn syrup. You eat every Oreo that's within arm's length. And then all of a sudden, you're going to go on a diet. You're going to move from high fructose corn syrup and Oreo diet to cauliflower and carrots and celery if someone asks you to lunch you'll go with them only if you go to freshy and all of a sudden you're getting worn out with cauliflower carrot celery and freshy you're hungry you're hangry right it's hard and what do you do you quit because the mistake you made was over correcting 
you decide it's time to work out. You're going to master the midsection, lose the lard, and what do you do? You're going to get toned, tan, and trim, and you get a gym membership. You haven't broken a sweat in six or seven years. You go to the gym, and the first day you're talking trash about CrossFit competition. And then what happens to you? The onset of muscle soreness, lactic acid buildup, pain deep in the muscles, bones, and joints. And what do you do? You quit. It's too hard. What have you done? You have over, you've overcorrected. And that can be our mistake. Fellas, your girl tells you, hey, I need you to be more affectionate. When you text me, don't be so abrupt. Don't be so fact-based. And so what do you do? You start sending her emojis. And no man sends emojis, right? Your girl is ready to quit you. You have overcorrected. You've gone from one extreme to the other. And Paul is writing this church and saying, that in a way is what you've done. You have gone from one extreme to the other. And we're going to see, we're going to see that there's some really bad extremes. Here's the first one that I want to give you that we see in this in Galatia. The first is legalism. Legalism is this. It's right behavior with wrong belief. Right behavior, wrong belief. In Matthew 15, Jesus is with a group of people. And Jesus says something that has always been so uh, memorable and impactful to me. He says to them, with your mouths, you honor me. With your lips, you honor me, but your blank is far from me. Do you know what he, you know what he says there? You honor me with your lips, but your something is far from me. What, what, what does he mention there? Solomon says, uh, a cheery one is good medicine. Shakespeare, uh, he said something about this as well, that an unrequited one is, is depressed. Uh, Celine Dion said, this will go on. Billy Ray Cyrus said, it's achy breaky. Bruce Springsteen, I see some Springsteen fans here in our older section. Uh, he said, everybody's got a hungry one, right? What are we talking about here? With me, you guys honor me with your lips, but your heart, it's far from me. Can that be true? Can you live your life where you have the right behavior, but the wrong beliefs? Six and a half years ago, I helped a good friend move. Always a bad idea, right? If you know somebody's moving, like you love them in Jesus' name, but if they're texting you, like don't answer, don't respond, you're busy, you know, you're praying for the nation, serving at the soup kitchen, don't help someone who's moving. I should have known better. But I showed up that day. I'm his pastor. And I, I helped him move. But you know why I showed up that day to help him move? Because a few weeks later, we were moving. I was moving a family of five from the reservoir into Fondren. And I thought, you know, I'm going to help him move. And he and these dudes will then help me move. I remember an instant where one of my kids wanted me to put air in their bike tire. And I was on the couch. I was tired. And I aired up their bike tire so they would ride away from me and let me be me. Like, get on out of here now. There's your, I got your air in the tire. Get on out. Get, get, get away from me. My wife, early in our marriage, I learned that I was to do the dishes occasionally, but I was supposed to want to do the dishes. Now, isn't that ridiculous? She's on the front row. Just tell her. I mean, that is ridiculous. See her after church and say, like, nobody wants to do the dishes. That's, it's ridiculous. She's ridiculous in that, in that area. <laughs> but look, all kidding aside, if you're married, 
or hope to be married, this will be good for you. But it's true in this arena of intimacy, like you not only should do the right thing, you should want to do the right thing. And legalism is this very dangerous heart disease, and it creeps in. And all of a sudden, you're doing the steps, you're practicing the rituals, you're going through the motions, you're doing the right behavior, but not with the right belief. How do you know? No doubt, we got some legalists in the house today. I've gone through bouts, through periods of it myself. How do you know if you're being a legalist? I don't have this on the screen, but I want to give you a few questions to mine your own heart. The first is, are you quickly jealous? Are you quickly jealous? Secondly, are you easily offended? Thirdly, are you naturally stingy? Now, what do those have in common? To be quickly jealous, to be easily offended, to be naturally stingy. You see, those flow, jealousy, right, and being quick to be offended, not giving, all those things, they flow from the heart of someone who feels like they've earned it. That they themselves have not been touched by grace. Oh, I've earned this. I worked my way up. I am an independent woman. I am a strong man. I have pulled myself up from my bootstraps. What I've got, I've earned it. I've worked hard. And look at so-and-so. They're riding down the lazy river, and they just got the promotion. Look at so-and-so. They got the new car. They got the new house. I'm jealous of that because I worked for mine. And the heart of the legalist forgets that they have been given. That every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. And a heart that is legalistic is a heart that doesn't want to give. They might give because that's what you do. Jesus said, you know, you pray, you fast, you give, you give your alms, you give your tithe, you give. But it's not sacrificial giving and it's done reluctantly in a stingy way and not joyfully. But the motivation to give, the motivation to forgive. The motivation to rejoice when others are promoted and get new things is his grace. You haven't earned it. You've been a recipient of his goodness in your life. And legalism, man, it's quick to be jealous. It's easily offended. It's naturally stingy. Jesus talked about the legalists in Matthew 23, 5, and he says this, that they, they, they live their life and they're, they're just focused on the, the outside of the cup and the outside of the cup is clean, but the inside, wait for it, is filthy. Can that be true? Can you do a lot of the right behaviors, yet your heart is untouched and unchanged? That's the heart of a legalist. It's dangerous. And here he's writing to people that had tasted freedom or that were around people who were tasting freedom. And he's saying, don't fall back into slavery. Don't fall for a fake gospel. I shared with you last week about my freshman year of college. I went to Mexico, Baja, Mexico. On the way back up uh, into America, San Diego, we stopped in Tijuana. Shouldn't have, but we did. We went to the open marketplace. We bought some name brand articles at knockoff prices. I got some Oakley sunshades and a, a Rolex right? Fake. And Paul is saying there's this fake gospel, and it's easy to fall back into what is fake if we're not careful. So there's legalism. It's the right behavior, 
It's a clean outside of the cup, but a filthy inside. It's the wrong belief. So what do we do? We overcorrect. And we say, if you've tried this, by the way, you're like, Ugh, all these rules, I'm just, it's not changing my heart. I'm tired of doing all the things that God says. His commandments have grown stale to me. And what do we do? We grab the steering wheel and we veer in the other direction. And here's the other direction. He addressed it. It's hypocrisy. And if legalism is the right behavior with the wrong belief, hypocrisy is this. Hypocrisy is the right belief with the wrong behavior. Getting the story here, getting the context of it, there's, there's Paul, former murderer who's now a missionary, a former persecutor who's now a pastor. And Paul is writing, and here's Cephas, James, John, and Peter. This is like, you know, the OGs, the, the, the gangsters, right, of the early church. These are, these are the guys that are, that are really important. And he's writing to them, and he's saying, hey, not only is legalism a problem, but so too is hypocrisy, where we have the right belief system, but the wrong behavior. So Peter, here's a guy who was really important. Here's a guy who was in the inner circle, one of the original gangsters. He's invited in. If at your place of work, or in your friendship group, or wherever you may be, you, you, you maybe you're kind of on the outside, maybe working your way up or in, and you really want to be on the inside. Well, Peter was on the inside. God used Peter in Acts 2 to preach the very first sermon in the history of the church, and it was a big deal. Peter was a really important dude. And what do you do with important dudes? If somebody really important walks into the room, how do you treat them? Typically, with some respect, with some honor, maybe with some reverential distance, maybe we treat them that way. What you certainly don't do is confront them. Like, you don't tell a big dude that he's got some mustard in his beard. He's a big dude. You don't confront him, you leave that alone. But Paul is saying, hey, this is, this is a big deal. This, this lack of freedom, this people falling back into a fake gospel, which he says is not a gospel at all, this is a big deal. And so he confronts his brother. And into this, we see this hurt for hypocrisy and the harm that it can do. So Peter, okay, in Acts 10, had had a vision on a rooftop. He met a man named Cornelius. Any of you know this story? There's, there's animals in a blanket, and it's strange and spooky, yet it is beautiful because God is coming to Peter in the early stage of the church and saying this is bolder and bigger then you think it includes everybody. The gospel is for everybody. It's not local and tribal and exclusive. It's for every person. Oh, a light goes off to Peter. And here, Peter is in Antioch. He shows up, and what's he doing? He's hanging out with everybody. He's hanging out with Gentiles. He, he's hanging out with the locals. It doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter where they're from. It doesn't even matter how they behave. Peter is hanging out with them because he believes that what, that's what Jesus would do. Jesus is for everybody. You know what? I, that's one of the reasons I love to follow him. Jesus is for everybody. Do you believe that? He's for everyone. That's the gospel message. Why do we limit it like we do? Why do we take positions and sides and build walls? Jesus is for everyone. So Peter shows up in Antioch doing the Jesus thing, and then here come the ritual guys. The ritual guys come from Jerusalem, and they show up, and Peter is faced with a choice. Do I continue to further the gospel 
and hang out with everybody or do I, out of fear of criticism, rejection, and judgment, do I hang out with the ritual guys? And what does Peter do? He demonstrates hypocrisy. He hangs out with the ritual guys. Now that's quite disturbing. So here's what I want you to do. Balcony, lower level, wherever you're sitting today, front or back, everybody raise your hand. Just raise a hand up high. Everybody, 100% of you, if you'll do this for me, okay? We're not starting a cult. Okay, trust me. Just raise your hand here. All right? Now look around the room. You're looking at the number of hands represent the number of people, and the number of people represent the number of us who have done this or do this. Keep your hands up just for a moment of collective shame. So look around the room. And this is the number of people who have at times changed themselves, changed the way they talk and love and live and hang out with because somebody showed up, because they were with a different crowd. All right? So put your hands down, bunch of hypocrites. You know any hypocrites? Just point at somebody and call them a hypocrite. They're a hypocrite. So look, here's the thing. Hypocrisy is in us. It's in us. And it infects us. Now, it doesn't just infect us. It infects the community. Barnabas, he's one of those guys, all right, one of the OGs. And Barnabas is known as a son of encouragement. God bless him. Like, give us some encouragers. This week, our staff was immensely blessed. I invited Bill Buckley. He was at our 930 service. Some of you know Bill. Uh, He played college football in our state, went on to play with the New York Jets and Joe Namath and is now the the uh, president of Mississippi's Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and Bill is an encourager. He's a Barnabas kind of guy. He's an encourager. He shared with our staff team. I gave him free reign, and before the time was up, he was looking at us in a prophetic way. He was calling our name and calling stuff out in us and encouraging us, speaking to us. It It was good. Some of our staff were in tears, a very moving experience. I love to be a part of something like that when we live in a world of conflict and we're just ripping each other up. And Bill Buckley, the Barnabas, comes and just says, man, let me speak some truth. Let me see what I see in you. And it was good. It was good. So we have a guy like Bill Buckley. We have a Barnabas. And this hypocrisy, what did it do? Peter's hypocrisy, it stains him. It brings him down. And that's what hypocrisy does. It hurts others, doesn't it? When you profess something and declare something over here, but you live a certain way, you're not just affecting your life. You're hurting other people. And that's what hypocrisy does. It's in us. It affects us. It infects others. So there's a steering wheel. And if we get too legalistic, if we're living life with you know, the right behavior and the wrong beliefs, and then we switch over here and we go into the hypocritical section where we have the right beliefs but the wrong behavior, Paul's going to tell the church that the path to freedom, it's a straight path forward it's not easy i'm gonna say it again it's not easy but it's simple he would say to the church in corinth do not stray away from the simplicity of your devotion in jesus it's letting him take the wheel okay i know carrie underwood sang it all the way to number one years ago but it's truly letting him be the one who's in control and it's a straight simple path of devotion in faith right down the middle 220 for i have now been crucified with christ nevertheless it is not i who live but christ he lives in me what a great what a great proclamation 
And so, we see here in this verse, if I've counted right, we see seven eyes or me's or my's. And we see three Christ, him, crucifies. Something has to happen to the self. I was reading from a philosopher I deeply admire this week. And he says that we, the problem that we're having with our depression and unhappiness, with the lack of peace and grace in our world today, is largely attributed to abandoning our faith, what is transcendent, and to church and to community which is the lifeblood, and we're moving away from that. And he listen to this descriptor. He calls it, we're moving away, and we've replaced it with a small, tiny little unit that cannot bear the weight of me. What is the tiny little unit that cannot bear the weight of me? It is the self. It is yourself. So you and I here on a gloomy, rainy Sunday, we sit in a big room, in a room where we live in this world that teaches us that if you're confused, find yourself. If you're stressed, take care of yourself. If you've been run over, stand up for yourself. If you're in a job interview, believe in yourself. If you're on a date, be yourself. If you're in a tattoo parlor, express yourself. But what happens? What happens when you realize? What happens when you realize that yourself is sick? What happens when you realize the weight of guilt and shame? The powerlessness you feel to see change. The frustration of your religious endeavors into hypocrisy and into legalism. The way forward is faith. The way forward is to him. It's to Jesus. Y'all know, even though I busted on her a few minutes ago, I love my Susan. She graduated from San Diego State and married this guy from Mississippi all those years ago. And she got a, a psychology major from, from SDSU. And so she works part-time. She's, I'd say she's full-time ministry. And she raises kids and a husband and just does a lot. And you would think that she doesn't use her psychology degree, but I'm telling you, she's married to me. She does. And a long time ago, um, we were looking at one of her textbooks. And she was reading some stuff, and I found it so fascinating. If you're a psych person, maybe you've seen this. But it's a quadrant. I don't have the horizontal vertical line, but you can pick that up. And in the quadrant, there are four, um, four delineations. The first is image. And image is what you know about you and what others know about you. That's image. Secrets are what you know about you, but what others don't know about you. And blind spots, these next two, as the name would suggest, blind spots, it's, it's what you don't know about you, but others know about you. And boy, let me tell you, some of them are wanting to tell you. They're wanting to, to I, I, I'm looking at a couple of you, I'd like to talk to you about your blind spots. But you'll, of course, email me about mine, and I'll receive that. Blind spots is what you don't know about you, but what others know about you. And then the unknown is just that. It's what you don't know about you, and what others don't know about you. Who does? The answer is God. Come on, church. We'll get through this. God knows, right? God knows all, and he knows the unknown. So with the image in that first quadrant, Jesus would tell us in the Sermon on the Mount that we spend far too much time in the first quadrant because we do what we do to be seen by other people. Like we want to impress them. So image is the public you. It's the you that you present to others. By contrast, 
the secret you is the private you. It's the you that you hide from others. And here in the blind spot category, that's what I appreciate about Nick Crawford, his friendship, his ministry here. But Nick reminds us the answer to our blind spots biblically and practically is living in community. Getting in rich relationships where we can love each other, live out those one another's, and in the process of being loved, we can be confronted in a gentle way. We can receive correction and we can work on those blind spots. And then there's the unknown. And that's where we need God. That's where we need stillness and quiet. And some of you are learning, and I, I hurt for your hurt, the pain that you're in. But you think that you're going to discover what God yet doesn't want you to discover. And you think that you can bring some sort of healing balm of relief in this stretch of your life. But you're walking in this unknown. And only he can. And only he will. And your efforts, though mighty, fall short time and time again and so yourself don't hide it don't project it come out in community with others let God speak in to you we spend far too much time in those first top quadrants and that's not a life that's crucified that's a life saying hey I want you to know this about me I want you to think this about me I want you to feel good about me I want to perform for you and every success and failure, you rise and fall with your performance. And that's so different. It's so different than the gospel. I was um, reading something from a, an old-fashioned newspaper a couple of weeks ago. I clipped it because I knew I would use it. It's just too good. It, it's about politics. I mean, that's why you came to church today, right? To talk about some politics. It's about a political war room that I'm learning is very common. And in this political war room, there are young people, I think they're still called millennials, and they're sitting around, listen to what this article says. In an office building nearly a dozen blocks from the White House, blue jean clad 20-somethings sit before flat screen computer images, scrolling through stories, reading Twitter feeds, and studying videotape footage. They have one goal, uncover an unguarded moment, a controversial position, a flip-flop, a past sin, anything that can be used to torpedo a political foe's campaign. Now, with a generation that values tolerance and not judgment, doesn't that kind of get the best of you? That young people, young operatives are paid full-time money to sit around and drink a bunch of Diet Cokes and look for dirt. And the end game has already been stated, I put it like this, I'm going to catch you, and I'm going to end you. No matter that these men and sometimes women have spouses and children and hopefully futures, but the goal is to torpedo. The goal is to find something wrong and end them. Now contrast that with Jesus, who does not say to any of you today, I'm going to catch you and end you. In fact, he says, I've already caught you. Like, I know it all. Like these quadrants, all this, like, I know it all. I know you. I know your dirt. I don't have to dig any of it up. And my end game is to begin a work in you. It's to say, as he said famously, and you'll hear me quote this passage a lot, Matthew 11, it's one of those lifer verses for me, come to me. 
all you who are weary, heavy laden, you're overburdened, and I will give you rest. Come to me. Exhausted, worn out, have trouble finding a remedy for what ails you, come to me. Stuck in lust, struggling with worry, mired in fear, get over here. That's his invitation. That's Jesus. And so as we close, I want to I end with this thought. of it, You see it in Galatians 2.10. It's this very idea that we're saved in a moment. And we grow through a process. We're saved in a moment for I have now, I have been crucified with Christ. There's a moment of salvation where Jesus takes you. He's like, it is finished. It is done. It is not in your doing. It is in your abiding and your resting. It is done. I've been crucified with Christ. We're saved in a moment. I want you to have confidence in your salvation. But the life that I now live, I live present tense, moving to the future. It's a process. And so while I pray that you would be confident in your salvation, I pray also that you would be patient in your growth. Any patient strugglers here today? Man, it's hard. Look, you're looking at one. Like I'm, I'm dealing with impatience in my life and I'm excited of the work that God is doing in me. I'm excited about Fondren and where he's taking us, but there are times when I look around and I want stuff now and I'm impatient. I was reading about the history of this building. Isn't it beautiful? And there was a church that formed a Baptist church called Northside Baptist because they were on Northside. They formed in the early 30s, and they moved here. They built this place in 1948 and renamed themselves Woodland Hills Baptist Church. They built this place in 1948, and sometimes when I walk around here and I'm praying and I'm challenging people to, to, make a, to help us give resources to make this place a place where you don't want to get out, but you want to hang out, and we can bring light and life and go way beyond church services and funerals and weddings, but there would, be, uh, there would be all kind of stuff, tutoring and just life change happening in this place. And I want to see improvement, but I'm reminded as I look at the history of this building, it's not just going to happen in a few years. They built this place in 1948, and in 1959, 11 years later, they engaged in the stained glass project. 11 years later, they, the stained glass wasn't here until 11 years after that. In the early 60s, they built the education wing and the gym in the back parking lot. And in the 70s, they brought in the pipe organ and they installed the steeple. Yeah, I just walk around here thinking, hey, they just did it all one time, right? Just bam, in a moment. But this was a group of people, of settlers and trailblazers, and they worked together and they sacrificed and gave to build this place. And now we share it with them, and one day it'll be all ours. We can be the inmates running the asylum. But there are just things that I want and things that I pray for and I envision because there is a dream. I believe it's a God-sized, God-given dream, but I have to be patient with the process. And I'm talking about a building. What about my life and my heart, my home? What about yours? We are saved in a moment. Nod, give me some love. If you're, if you're excited about that, like you're saved in a moment. Isn't that good news? 
Like you didn't deserve that. You were given this grace, this free gift, saved in a moment. And it is sealed. But growth is a process. Would you stand? I want to pray over us that very thing.